I've spent a lot of time in recent years, probably too much, thinking and writing about the state of Republican politics. For me, at least, it really began with that familiar scene at Trump Tower in 2015, when Donald Trump descended that golden escalator and announced his presidential campaign. I am officially running for president of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. How stupid are they? I just sold an apartment for $15 million. Not good. But it could be you want to be cool. We're in a bubble. We got nothing but problems. Trump got Congratulations. That's the good. Do a great job. We would never build an, an ocean. It can happen. Most people didn't take Trump seriously at the time. But it became clear very quickly that this wasn't a fluke, that the Republican Party had crossed some kind of imaginary line and become something different. Or at least that's what we told ourselves. Since then, an obscene amount of ink and airtime has been devoted to figuring out how it all happened and what it all meant. The problem with a lot of those discussions is that they don't wind the clock back far enough. And that historical blindness makes it harder, maybe even impossible, to fully understand the evolution of the Republican Party. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Nicole Hemmer. She's a historian at Vanderbilt and the author of a new book called Partisans, The Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. Hemmer's argument is a little different from the story I outlined earlier. For her, there wasn't an imaginary line crossed in 2015. If anything, it was crossed decades earlier, in the 80s and especially the 90s. This, she says, is when the political ground started to shift. And to make any sense of those shifts, you have to go back to the rise of Ronald Reagan. It was one of those things that occurred to me as I was thinking about that shift from the 1980s to the 1990s. Ronald Reagan had won election as president in two giant landslide elections, and his vice president, George Bush, wins in a landslide as well. So throughout the 1980s, you're seeing these Republican landslides, but they're not just Republican landslides. They're conservative landslides. It was something that Reagan had cracked the code for, how you could build a popular majoritarian conservative movement. And you would imagine, given how successful that was, that it would continue into the 90s, into the 2000s, into the 20-teens. But what happens is, in the 1990s, the right shifts toward a much more aggressive, pessimistic, minoritarian form of politics that's focused more on polarizing the electorate using right-wing politics rather than building these consensus majorities around conservatism. And there's a number of different reasons for that. I mean, one of the reasons that feels the biggest is the end of the Cold War. The Cold War was this geopolitical reality that shaped American politics left, right, and center for 40 years. And it ends almost overnight in the late 1980s. And it creates a kind of vacuum for conservatives because it was ideas around the Cold War that had held the conservative movement together for so long and that had really given Reagan's conservatism a kind of pro-democracy, openness, majoritarianism that no longer existed. The logic for his politics no longer existed. And then you have a new media landscape with the rise of talk radio and cable news and political entertainment on cable and a new Congress-focused right that is looking to win at the district level, not necessarily at the national level. So there's a lot of changes underway. The battle against communism was a kind of ideological anchor for conservatism. It allowed the movement to define its notions of freedom and religion against the Soviets. And anti-communism was a very useful 
justification for interventionism and basically cutting all federal spending that's not military. And that organizing principle just collapses. That's a huge shift in the conservative worldview. I mean, it requires some kind of scrambling, and it happened. That's exactly right. I think that we haven't spent enough time thinking about the way the Cold War conditioned conservatism and conditioned Reaganism, that for somebody like Reagan, the Cold War helped him to understand conservatism through the lens of freedom and democracy. So even if he wasn't always living out those values in his politics, and he often wasn't living out those values in his politics, if you listen to Reagan's speeches, he is constantly talking about the need for democracy, that democracy is so important it's worth dying for. The march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies, which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of the people. A crusade for freedom that will engage the faith and fortitude of the next generation. And this translates into policies as well. He calls for free trade. He calls for an open immigration system. And that is rooted in ideas about America as the answer to the closed system of communism, that you need to have these open systems with the free movement of people and goods in order to show that democracy and freedom are inextricably linked. And that's what Reagan does. And when the Cold War ends, that constraint on U.S. politics that requires appeals to democracy, that requires the U.S. to be involved in the world, that goes away, and suddenly you have a much more expansive space for right-wing politics that aren't beholden to those limits. So when Reagan finally wins the presidency in 80, you know, liberals had dominated government for a fairly long while. I'm curious why you think he was able to turn the tide. I mean, did he pitch himself as someone who was conservative in a way that the Republican Party wasn't any longer and he was going to redirect it? Or what was his narrative there? So he felt, and many movement conservatives felt, that the Republican Party was insufficiently conservative. Movement conservatism is the conservatism of people who are activists and organizers. So it is the conservatism of somebody like Phyllis Schlafly, who organized opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. It is the conservatism of the people who turn out for the Tea Party. And it is very different from a kind of light establishment conservatism. Reagan was the first to... First of all, embrace a full conservative ideology and platform. So he's going to bring the true real conservatism to the White House, but also that he is doing that in a moment when liberalism felt spent as a political force, particularly in 76 and 80, when the country is in recession. There's this sense that social programs aren't working to alleviate things like crime and poverty. And he's able to point to those things and say, hey, liberals have been in power for like 30 years. So if anybody is responsible for this, it is them. And he was also able to harness more of these domestic movements, groups that were organizing against feminism and the Equal Rights Amendment, groups that were organizing against busing and school desegregation. So that idea that the people were already rising up against the liberal order and the liberal elites, and that Reagan was a voice for those people, I think is how he framed his appeal and framed his massive victory in 1980. In some ways, it feels like he puts a fresh avuncular face on lots of old ideas. If you can skip past some of the lofty rhetoric, besides fighting communism, he seemed very eager to bolster big business and undermine the social safety net. I mean, I imagine that played pretty well in a certain corner of the conservative movement, or am I just thinking of the conservative movement as it is today? No, I think that's right. I think that Reagan conservatism was about things like deregulation and tax cuts, that idea that the government had grown too big, that it was taking and spending too much of your money. It had gotten in the way of 
people's ability to thrive, right? Instead of giving them a boost, it was acting as an anchor on entrepreneurial spirit and their ability to build and do new things. Again, this idea that liberalism was spent and conservatism was something innovative and new. And so when it came to the actual policies, when he first gets into office, he puts in place the largest tax cut at that point in U.S. history in 1981. He works on deregulating various parts of the government, including things like communications and getting rid of the Fairness Doctrine within the Federal Communications Commission. So there are all of these things that he's doing in order to try to cut down the size of government, although ultimately he's more effective at cutting the budget than he is at actually cutting the spending side of things, which is why there are such huge deficits. Right. But he's able to frame all of that as getting the government out of the way. And that was something that was kind of new for a Republican president to actually follow through with that kind of deregulation, especially at the scale that he did it. And the major players in movement conservatism and really even Republican politics at the time, were they skeptical of Reagan? Did they like him or did they think that he was just a very useful political instrument and they had to they were going to ride that tiger <laughs> to victory with him as a kind of very likable figurehead, as it were? Yeah. I should say that most conservatives really liked Reagan. He was somebody who had been out there for a couple of decades at that point. He was somebody who had aggressively defended conservative politics ever since Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964. Reagan was somebody who was able to more effectively sell Goldwater's conservatism than Goldwater himself was. Barry Goldwater has faith in us. He has faith that you and I have the ability and the dignity and the right to make our own decisions and determine our own destiny. Thank you very much. So he had kind of that shiny aura around him. However, there was a faction within conservatism, a group that called itself the New Right. These were folks who were more directly in the lineage of somebody like George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama, who runs for president as an independent in 1968 and 1972. The first thing that I would say as a president is I give my moral support to the police and firemen in this country. I would ask the Congress to pass legislation that did away with decisions of the courts that handcuffed the police. And I would just say we're going to have law and order. You were quoted as having observed once that the people know the way to stop a riot is to hit someone on the head. Yes, sir. I, I, I've said uh, something similar to that. And Wallace is able to show that a kind of aggressive racial politics works pretty well outside of the Deep South in places like Wisconsin, in places like New York. He was able to tap into a more national movement in that way. And the new right, the way one of its leaders put it, they organized discontent. They took all of that frustration and organized around it. And they saw somebody like Reagan and his sunny-sided optimism and his pragmatism and his willing to compromise as insufficient for the times. They opposed his nomination before they finally ran out of options and had to support Reagan in 1980 when he becomes president. They're complaining right from the start. So Richard Vigory, who is this direct male guru and one of the leaders of the New Right, says three weeks into the Reagan administration, I knew we were going to get the short end of the stick. I didn't expect it to be this short. They're mad about Sandra Day O'Connor's nomination to the Supreme Court. They're mad that Reagan raises taxes in 1982 and 1984. And they're furious that he opens up relations with the Soviet Union. One New Right leader calls Reagan a useful idiot for Soviet propaganda because he's willing to go into these meetings with Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the Soviet premier during Reagan's second term. And so there is this group on the right that just, they don't like Reagan and they're constantly fighting with him, but they're small enough and he's popular enough that they don't get a lot of traction during the 1980s. What did they want? More like explicit xenophobia, more isolationism? I mean, is that kind of... It wasn't isolationism in the 1980s. In the 1980s, they actually wanted him to go more aggressively at the Soviet Union. Right. But they also felt like he didn't actually use any of his political capital to do things like overturn Roe v. Wade, to get a constitutional amendment about school prayer. They didn't feel like he 
brought the fight to the Democrats and to liberals and wasn't willing to go all in on social issues. And even somebody who wasn't necessarily a new right leader, like Newt Gingrich, who was a member of Congress who would later become Speaker of the House, Gingrich in 1984 writes a piece about Reagan where he's like, Reagan is spending too much time governing and not enough time polarizing. And that idea on the new right, organized discontent, Reagan wasn't taking advantage of that discontent enough. And so that was the big knock against Reagan. Why do you think Reagan remained, even well into the 90s and really into the aughts as well, a very powerful symbol for conservatives, even though, as you say, they kept behaving less and less like them. Why was he still this idol that they either pretended to genuflect before, or why was he still useful if the party and the movement was veering more and more away from his whole approach to politics? For a couple of reasons. One, there were a lot of victories to lay at Reagan's feet. They could point to him as somebody who was incredibly popular, somebody who did cut taxes, somebody who won the Cold War. And so all of that showed what a victorious conservatism could look like. But I think more importantly than that, the fact that Reagan retires from politics fairly soon after he leaves the presidency. How old is he when he steps away? He would have been in his 70s at that point, which now seems very young for a president to, to disappear mm. because he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Right. So even his appearances in 90, 91, 92, he's just not as forceful a figure. And what happens because he's no longer a figure in the news, it makes it much more possible to build up a mythology around him to project onto him a set of beliefs and politics that maybe he never really had. Yep. And then finally, one other really important reason is that he is followed by George Bush. And George Bush is somebody that conservatives didn't like at all. All of their frustrations toward Reagan, they were able to take that out on George Bush, and they do take that out on George Bush. It creates in popular imagination a stark contrast between the glory days of Reagan and the kind of heresies of George Bush. And this gets us to the 90s and this political vacuum that opens up in conservative politics. And one of the early figures to recognize it and fill it is Pat Buchanan and his 1992 presidential campaign. Was that, from our perch today in the year of our Lord, 2022, was that campaign the real canary in the coal mine in terms of where we were going? It wasn't necessarily seen as such at the time, because Pat Buchanan is going to run for president in 1992 and 1996 and 2000, so he becomes a perennial candidate. So he's one of those losers of American political history. He's somebody who most Americans knew not because he had served in the Nixon administration or the Reagan administration, but because he was a television pundit. Yep. He was somebody that millions of people watched on PBS on the McLaughlin Group. From Washington, the McLaughlin Group, the American original. Which was this kind of sparring show on public television or on Crossfire on CNN, which Buchanan had hosted since it had debuted in 1982. Tonight, from Washington, Crossfire. From the right, Pat Buchanan. Join us tomorrow night for another edition of Crossfire. And he uses that platform to run for president in 1992. But he brings with him a whole host of issues that were novel for a post-Cold War conservatism, which the Republican Party would come to adopt over time. So even though he doesn't win, he's able to change the politics of the party. And one quick example that I think is pretty telling, Buchanan in May of 1992, he goes down to the U.S.-Mexico border and he holds a press conference where he inveighs against illegal immigration and the way that it is not just harming the U.S. economy, but also represents a danger to American culture. And he calls during that campaign for a Buchanan fence, which was a series of trenches and walls at the U.S.-Mexico border. Boy, this all sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, and it has a real effect because it had been clear for months that he wasn't going to win this nomination. But when it comes to the convention that year and the Republican platform, for the very first time in history, it calls for structures on the U.S.-Mexico border. It's the first call for a border wall in the Republican platforms. I mean, it's not just the anti-immigration stuff. 
He's also anti-interventionist. He's anti-free trade. Mm -hmm. There's the added contempt for feminism and, and gay rights. I mean, he really shows that there's real potential here. I don't remember the exact quote, but he says something to the effect of like the greatest political vacuum in the country is to the right of Reagan. Like he sees it. And even though he doesn't win, it really shows what's possible. And he attracted, in part because of his policies, but in part because of his pugilism, in part because he is throwing all of those invectives during his campaign, he attracts the most loyal and the most vocal and the most visible supporters. And when he goes to the convention and gives his primetime speech in 1992, that's the speech that everyone remembers. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself, for this war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side, and George Bush is on our side. It is a rousing speech. It's an emotional speech. He calls for a culture war in America, or at least acknowledges that there is a cultural war in America, and that these people, the feminists, the homosexuals, the liberals, they're all coming for you, and that there needs to be a revolution to overthrow those forces. But actually, maybe there needs to be a revolution in the Republican Party as well. Yeah. And that kind of revolutionary spirit, which he quite often and quite explicitly evokes, is an important part of the right-wing politics of the 1990s. It is radical and revolutionary in a way that Reaganism maybe wasn't. And this is part of the critique of the Republican establishment, right? That they're too weak, that their obsession with compromise and getting things done, which is liberal democracy is part of the problem because they're compromising with enemies or with people who hate the country, who hate you. And that is the stuff that leads to a very anti-democratic, illiberal place. And that's the big break from Ronald Reagan. In 1990, which is this moment of real democratic triumphalism in the U.S. and across the Western world because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, in that moment, Buchanan is writing in his column about how the American press is obsessed with this idea of democracy, and he puts democracy in scare quotes. And he goes on to write that now that we are freed of the constraints of the Cold War, maybe it's time to rethink some of these assumptions. Democracy seems to be a pretty inefficient form of government. What about autocracy? We could get a lot more done. And that is something you were not hearing in mainstream spaces on the right during the Cold War. The fact that he was someone who did not have any actual governing experience at all, that he had built his political brand entirely through the media and showed how successful that could be and how much that worked in a, a more visual, more imagistic media economy where people are watching TV and, you know, sound bites and all that stuff. I mean, that I think that's an understated part of the power of his example and what he foreshadowed. And I think that it's an interesting divergence from Reagan there as well, because Reagan, too, was a media figure. Right. He was somebody who was in the movies, he was an actor, sure. but he was an actor. And he had laundered his reputation through actual governing, which uh, Buchanan had not. And he was a governor of California. Yeah, that idea of these media candidates was becoming more popular and more present in U.S. politics in the late 1980s and the 1990s. Pat Robertson runs for president in 1988. He was the founder of the Christian Broadcasting Network and had built up his reputation as a preacher through televangelism. Ross Perot who runs in 1992, also had never held office before. He had built his political following through Larry King Live on CNN. So I think that the changing media environment creates opportunities for this kind of political disruption that hadn't existed before, and that Buchanan was just the most successful of the people to catch on to this early on. Coming up after a quick break, in the evolution of American conservatism, how important is Rush Limbaugh?
Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Talk radio was very obviously a thing before the 90s, but it really blossoms with the rise of Rush Limbaugh. And how important is he in this evolution of conservatism? I mean, my sense is that it's hard, maybe impossible, to overstate his significance, but maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I don't think you are. I mean, Limbaugh is hugely important as an innovator in the field of talk radio. You're right. It had existed before. It had largely been either local or not call-in programming. So to have a national program where people could call in, where you were live for three hours a day, that was something that was new. But also that when you had that show for three hours a day, that millions of people would tune in was something America just hadn't seen before. It was a new phenomenon in U.S. politics. <clears throat> Greetings to you, conversationalists all across the fruited plain. Rush Limbaugh with talent on loan from God. Election Day 1992, an EIB exit poll in process. By the early 1990s, Rush Limbaugh not only has millions of listeners, but he is treated as a genuine media and political phenomenon. He has best-selling books. He has a new television show in 1992 that Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, helps produce. But he also is directly talking about politics every single day and politics from a conservative perspective. He does it in a very kind of, almost kind of a morning zoo kind of way. He has a lot of parodies and skits and gags, but clearly people are responding to it in a way that makes him seem like more than a media force. So, for instance, listeners to Rush start to set up Rush rooms, which are sections of restaurants where they will go and all gather together for the three hours a day of his program in between breakfast and lunch and just sit and listen to his show. It was something that was so dynamic and so entertaining and that people just hadn't experienced before. And he came out in 1992 for Pat Buchanan. And when he did... The Bush administration freaked out because, again, he wasn't somebody who had demonstrated any kind of sway on electoral politics, but he seemed like too big a force to ignore. And that Bush invites him to stay at the White House, correct? It's wild. He invites him to stay at the White House. When uh, Rush arrives at the White House, the president being, you know, kind of blue blood Yankee, like carries his bags. Rush Limbaugh sees this as a sign of deference that the president of the United States is carrying his bags. And he talks about it on his show the next day, but he also talks about it on his show for the next 30 years because he recognizes that something has shifted. He has become a player in electoral politics. There wasn't a real precedent for it. Wait, I forgot, or maybe I just never knew, that Rush had endorsed Buchanan in 92, which tells you... He could not only see where conservatism was headed, but he also knew that's where the heat was. That's where the business was. I have a hard time believing he did that out of any sincere ideological conviction one way or the other. I think it was just an entrepreneurial choice to follow the winds where they were blowing. 
There's a great book by Brian Rosenwald called Talk Radio's America that gets more into the behind the scenes on this. But, you know, Limbaugh was pretty honest about his decision to pursue political talk after years spent as a sportscaster and as a kind of shock jock. And he was like, money. It makes me money. <laughs> the thing that I think about when I'm programming is money. So he doesn't hide that he has that as his motive. I mean, look, I <laughs> I think Rush is an odious person with an odious legacy, but I can admit that he was an enormously gifted broadcaster. But that doesn't seem quite enough to explain what he became. I mean, what was it about him that broke through? What was different about it? Why did he become what he became? It's a great question because, I mean, part of it is his connection with the formal structures of politics, that he is talking to people like Roger Ailes, that he is talking to people like Bush later on when Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House. The two of them are talking all the time. By the 1994 elections, the New York Times calls him the precinct captain for the Republican Revolution. He wasn't just an entertainer. And so why does he become that person? Why is it that people are so connected to him? And part of it is a media story. It's the ability of people to call into his show, to feel like they're participating and helping to co-create this show. Right. So part of his rise is often credited to the end of the fairness doctrine a piece of radio regulation that had required balanced reporting on controversial issues, that he is the voice for all of these people, and that he is saying things that they've never heard on radio before, that they don't hear in media. And it's not just his conservative politics, but it is this kind of over-the-top, outrageous, offensive material that he's able to wrap in entertaining jokes and laughs and skits and parodies. It's hard to really zero in on, but it's some combination of that entertainment and power and populism that gives him so much power. Yes. And you're speaking to some of the blurriness of the lines here that I think is really dangerous. During this time in the early and mid-90s, we have a spike in anti-government violence Mm -hmm. There's Ruby Ridge and there's Waco and there's the Oklahoma City bombing. You could argue that this was a precursor for what was coming, but also that it was early evidence that there were real world consequences to going on the air every day and stoking paranoia and hatred. That it may be a grift for someone like Limbaugh, but it sure as hell isn't for Timothy McVeigh. I just don't think we can overstate the role of these political entrepreneurs in creating a more dangerous environment that eventually spills into the streets. And I think Limbaugh is especially noteworthy in this respect. I think that's right in that he really heightens the us versus them politics on the right yeah. and leans into conspiracy theories. I mean, he's somebody who's talking about Vince Foster, who was an aide to the Clintons who died by suicide, that the right for decades has argued was actually murdered by the Clintons or on the orders of the Clintons. He leaned into conspiracy theories and anti-government politics in such a way that it wasn't just run-of-the-mill conservatives who felt heard. You're very right that the militia movement gathered steam in the early 1990s. And while there were certainly more radical voices they were listening to, there is a, a tradition of radical white power and radical anti-government programming on radio. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? Someone like Rush Limbaugh doesn't have to get on the air and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a white supremacist and we should burn down the government. But by buttressing and justifying some of these underlying grievances and exaggerating them for political effect because it's good for business, he does, in a very real way, give cover to those movements. And that's that's where it gets, I think, really morally murky. Yeah, and turns the temperature up on politics in a way. It's raising the stakes constantly, yeah. And in a hit-dog-will-yelp kind of moment, when the Oklahoma City bombing happens and President Clinton is speaking out after, he talks about the voices of rancor and division in the country, on the airwaves. I'm sure you are now seeing the reports of some things that are regularly said over the airwaves in America today. They leave the impression by their very words that violence is acceptable. 
And he doesn't explicitly mention Rush Limbaugh, but Rush Limbaugh goes on air and says, President Clinton has just accused me of, of being behind the Oklahoma City bombing. Again, exaggerating what Clinton said, but also feeling hit by that particular criticism. This is 1995. Bill Clinton blamed this program for the Oklahoma City bombing, folks. There is no Fox News yet. And he blames me for the Oklahoma City bombing. And the media loved it because they hated me then like they hate me now. They just ate it up. So Fox News goes live in 1996. And I want to call that a demarcation line, but that seems wrong because I don't think Fox represents some boundary between two distinct brands of conservatism. It just sort of accelerates and cements all these trends that were already afoot and kind of sowed the seeds for this demand side problem that sort of eventually devoured the party. And I think you've been kind of gesturing at that throughout this conversation. Yes. I mean, so much of what was changing in the party had already changed by the time Fox News comes around, right? Rush Limbaugh had become a major figure by that point in time. Pat Buchanan had already run a couple of presidential campaigns. Newt Gingrich had become Speaker of the House in January of 1995. So you had all of these people who were actively pushing the right further right. And in this kind of populist, anti-establishment direction, Fox News premieres in October of 1996, around the same time as MSNBC. And yes, it is going to become a powerful organ on the right. Not at first, though. I mean, at first, you know, MSNBC also had a number of important conservative commentators. People like Ann Coulter and Laura Ingram were there and not on Fox News. Pat Buchanan would end up on MSNBC. Tucker Carlson would start on MSNBC and then CNN. Same with Glenn Beck starts on CNN. So Fox News is kind of lagging behind in some ways, but it's also just slow to build an audience. During the 1990s, Fox News does not have much of an audience at all, and neither does MSNBC. It really takes until 2000, 2001 for it to really take off. It does have political influence. It doesn't have Limbaugh-style political influence, right? People aren't apologizing to Fox News for crossing the network the way they are with Limbaugh, who becomes kind of a, a godfather on the right. But to me, it's sort of the beginning of when the Republican Party really loses control over <laughs> what the Republican Party is and where it's going. I mean, this is the beginning of, I think, these conservative media figures becoming much more powerful than conservative politicians. They weren't tools of the politicians. The politicians were tools of them. Yeah, and that's happening with Limbaugh. It becomes more true of Fox News. And Fox News also becomes, unlike talk radio, a space where politicians and pundits are entering a revolving door. So somebody like Mike Huckabee spends his time between elections on Fox News. Somebody like Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, they stay in the public mind as commentators on Fox News and then resign their positions to run for president in 2012. There's something about Fox that in some ways erases the line between media and politics in a number of ways where it trains politicians to be pundits and pundits to be politicians, mm. which is pretty important. So the Republican Party is radicalizing in this way in the 90s. And this is happening as the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton is really moderating. Like the Democratic Party is moving rightward. And yet the Republican Party is behaving as though the existential threat from Stalinism or whatever is like expanding more by the nanosecond. Like what the hell is that literally just the media engineering this climate and this environment and these anxieties and the Republican Party having to appease and satisfy those very moods and anxieties and political currents? So I wouldn't put it entirely on the media. I think it's a really important observation because sometimes the 1990s are described as a decade of polarization, which, as you pointed out, that's not what happens. The Democratic Party moves to the right. It's not racing away from the Republican Party. But it is a decade in which Republicans use polarization as a tool. And somebody like Newt Gingrich is intent on polarizing the electorate. 
And certainly political parties have fought in the past and have disagreed and have demonized the other side. But it had become a more explicit political tactic on the right during the 1990s. And so there is a kind of polarization that's happening or a polarization that's being used. And media are part of that. But they're not the only part of that. It's a tactic that Gingrich is using, but Gingrich is also facing real attacks from his right within the Republican caucus in the House. There's a group in the House, in the the newly Republican House in 1995, that calls itself the True Believers. And they're constantly pulling the Republican Party even further right, calling for longer government shutdowns, calling for impeachment years before Gingrich was ready for it. So it's happening on the media side, and they're getting a lot of support within conservative media. So it's not that conservative media doesn't play a role here, but it is a broader phenomenon on the right. How do you view Newt's legacy? How important a figure is he in this story? He's a pretty important figure in that he set the tone in many ways for Republican politics in the 1990s. I think that he is misunderstood, however, in his politics in the 1990s because He was also trying to figure out how to expand the Republican Party base at times. You know, the contract with America, which is the agenda that he uses to nationalize the midterms in 1994, that was a document that was shorn of all sorts of divisive social issues. It didn't include attacks on Democrats. It didn't include attacks on Bill Clinton. It was really about reaching out to people who had voted for Ross Perot in 1992. We're here because we are taking the first steps, and we're taking them in a contract with the American people. Every item in our contract is supported by 60% or more of the American people. Some of the items are supported as much as 80% of the American people. And outside Washington, this is a contract with Americans for America. And he saw in Clinton somebody who he could actually work with because Clinton was that more centrist, right-leaning Democrat. And he paid a price and ultimately would move further to the right. What would you say was new or different about Newt's approach as a political innovator? And, you know, in a lot of ways, the sort of politics that Newt pioneered really does seem to have endured today almost as much as anyone else's in this story, at least in the actual political side, politicians and not just media figures. He was somebody who did rely quite a lot on rhetoric and media when it came to his politics. There are those old stories from the 1980s where he would take advantage of the fact that C-SPAN was constantly broadcasting and that the camera was fixed so he could make these rousing speeches where he called out Democrats and he would tell them to respond and they wouldn't respond and nobody could see that the chamber was empty. He was a master manipulator of media and language, and I think that that's important. But he also personalized politics. What does that mean? One of the ways that he moved up in the Republican Party ranks was by weaponizing ethics complaints Mm. in order to topple Jim Wright, who had been the Democratic speaker. He saw reform not as something that was good in its own right, but something that was good for taking down other people. And he would personally target particular people to take down. One of the things that he pioneers is this kind of procedural obstruction. Some of this is about government shutdowns. Government shutdowns in the 1990s were at the time the longest in history. They were much longer and much more personal than what we had seen before, because it really was about kind of fight between him and President Clinton. Long investigations into the suicide of Vince Foster that went on for like two years, where one member of Congress is like recreating it in his backyard with a melon and a handgun. And then also the impeachment of Bill Clinton, which was a pretty novel use of impeachment as well. And that kind of congressional obstructionism feels resonant with today. I don't think Newt Gingrich sprung from a void. No. I mean, he was very much a product of the media environment he found himself in, the rise of cable news and horse race coverage. That model thrived on the gamification of politics, of politics as tribal sport. And Newt absolutely embodied that. He absolutely did. That man <laughs> loved to take advantage of this new media environment. So he he was kind of both speaker and pundit at the same time. 
But he was also somebody who understood the importance of this new conservative media. When he took over the speaker's office in 1995, that first week, he had all of these radio hosts come in so that they could broadcast live from Congress. And so there was a a kind of savvy about him as well. So why does Nicole Himmer think we should have seen Trump coming decades ago? That's what I'll ask her after one last short break. appreciate that your book isn't really about Trump at all. He's sort of the elephant in the room in these sorts of conversations. And I take it that you didn't see his election as an aberration, but rather as a fairly predictable manifestation of all these currents we've been discussing. Did you feel like we were sort of inexorably marching towards some Trump figure? Was he the culmination of all of this? Or do you see him more as some kind of bizarre outlier? So this has been kind of the big debate over the last five or six years. Are you a Trump exceptionalist? Do you believe that he just came in and broke the system out of nowhere? Or is he the culmination of political trends? I quite clearly fall on the side of Trump as an outgrowth of these trends, which is not to say that he was inevitable or that his victory was inevitable. Obviously, his victory happened under very particular circumstances, won by a very thin margin in the Electoral College. So I I wouldn't say that he was inevitable or predictable necessarily, but a figure like him is understandable if we understand this longer history, how somebody could come up through media as an anti-establishment Republican attacking the Bushes and McCain just as much as he was attacking Hillary Clinton. Then why do you think so many people, and I mean people in the commentariat, people even in establishment, Republican politics, couldn't believe what was happening, seemed genuinely surprised by Trump's victory? I mean, for Christ's sake, Buchanan's presidential slogan in 92 was America first. It sure was. <laughs> How were so many people bowled over by this outcome? It seems so obvious given this history we're laying out here. How do you make sense of that befuddlement? So part of it is kind of the the long shadow of Ronald Reagan, that the Reagan mythology was still quite strong within the Republican Party, and that the presidency has been a lagging indicator when it comes to changes that were happening within the Republican Party. Look at who the previous Republican candidates had been. They were Mitt Romney and John McCain. And these were still some pretty traditional, understandable, conservative Republican figures who fit a particular mold that Donald Trump did not. So I think a lot of people, when they saw Donald Trump take off early in 2015, thought, Oh, this is a guy who's going to search the front of the polls because Republicans like shiny objects, and then he's going to deflate and somebody else will rise up. And who could imagine a reality TV host who talks the way that Donald Trump does and seems so divorced from reality and doesn't fit the model of, say, the religious right that people are expecting? So I think people just brought in one understanding of conservatism and hadn't fully integrated some of these developments that had happened. I recall one of the Republican presidential debates when Trump was running, and they had it at like the Reagan Library in California. They sure did. Welcome to the Air Force One Pavilion of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. Our thanks to the staff here, and especially to former First Lady Nancy Reagan for this impressive setting with Ronald Reagan's presidential plane as our backdrop. They're at Reagan's library and you got all the symbolism and all the stuff in the backdrop and all the candidates are kind of like bending the knee as one does to the great myth of Ronald Reagan. And then Trump is kind of the only one on the stage. And again, I'm not quoting him, but he's like, I don't give a shit about Reagan. I mean, (laughs) he clearly understood that like this is a dead idol, that no one cares. He was the only one who was not even pretending to give a damn about any of that, which really spoke to how much 
the party had changed, whether or not the people running it knew it. Absolutely. I had gone through the transcripts of that debate, and there was only one candidate who didn't mention Reagan's name the entire time, and it was Donald Trump. And I think that that's exactly right, that he knew people weren't there for that. Because also, if you if you go back and you watch that debate, it's all of this, like, pablum about Reagan. It has no energy. It has no emotion behind it. It's not speaking to the kind of entertaining and offensive and outrageous stuff that Donald Trump is doing. It doesn't feel relevant to what's happening during that campaign. Trump was ahead of the curve on this in ways that most commentators and political observers were not. Yeah, and he took the extremism of the base seriously in a way establishment types didn't, and they paid a political price for that. It's hard to imagine any other candidate in 2016 coming out and calling for a ban of all Muslims to the United States. Like, they just wouldn't do it in part because it's illegal and unconstitutional, and in part because it just seems too crazy. Like, you're going to get pounced on in the press for saying something like that. And of course, Donald Trump was pounced on, and it uh, did not end up harming his political fortunes. It's not just about having tapped into the base and having a kind of natural instinct for figuring out where the base is and locking on to um, their moods and their frustrations, but also hacking the media ecosystem, which of course he had been part of. I'm thinking out loud here. I'm thinking about how to understand the evolution of the left and how that may have fueled or altered this trajectory of conservatism. I mean, as opposed to just focusing on the internal dynamics, you know, in some ways it's impossible to make causal claims about big sweeping ideological shifts. But I do think it's notable that for many years, the right was radicalizing more and more despite the left moderating. And now it feels like we're in a kind of spiral. The reality is that the polarization is intensifying and the stakes keep escalating. And somehow it feels like we're at a point where the most consequential divide between the parties is that one supports small d democracy and the other doesn't. And I don't really know where to go from there. Oh, it's not not good. And yet at the same time, I'd like to take that idea of democracy and play with it a little bit because you've probably seen these polls that show that almost an equivalent number of Republicans and Democrats are afraid for the future of democracy and their fears are driven by very different things. I think that in addition to the liberal anti-democratic movement on the right, you also have a definition of democracy on the right that is in conflict with the left's definition. The left embraces this idea of an inclusive multiracial democracy in a way that the right doesn't. And so those ideas are in conflict. So even the folks who think that they're defending democracy on the right are defending a very different vision of democracy than folks on the left are. But I do take seriously that significant portions of the right, even when they think they're defending democracy, no longer support small-D democratic institutions, including the right for voters' votes to be counted, the right for elections not to be overthrown, the right for the Capitol not to be sacked, the right for Nancy Pelosi's house not to be attacked. (laughs) Like, there is just not an agreement on those things anymore. And that is incredibly dangerous. And part of it does require thinking through why is it that support for democracy in the U.S. is so weak? What are the institutional failures that have weakened that support in addition to the political entrepreneurs and actors who have helped to degrade support for democracy? Those are worthwhile questions to think about, to think about where people's frustrations have come from, how they have been exploited. But that difference between pro-democracy and anti-democracy, they make politics existential, and that's really worrisome. At the same time, as a historian, like we've only been a functional multiracial democracy in the U.S. for like 50 or 60 years. Even though we claim to be the world's oldest democracy, the kind of democracy that we have is fairly new and fragile. And I don't think that Democrats, Americans more broadly, have done enough to make the case for why this new form of democracy deserves defending and deserves protection. I know you do history, not prophecy, but... As the center collapses, all the political energy moves further outward to the extremes. And I guess that raises the question, what's the next iteration here? Where are we going? I mean, I wanted to ask you where you think the conservative movement in particular, and 
by extension, the Republican Party is headed. But I have to say, I, I think we've probably already said it. All the energy is with the anti-democratic, illiberal right. And the problem with the political movement rooted in grievance and negation is that, as we've been saying, you have to keep upping the stakes to drive engagement. You have to keep dialing up the threat from the enemy. And so it just keeps spiraling until almost half of one of our parties rejects the results of an election. And so the question is, can you change the political incentives that exist, the social incentives that exist, the cultural incentives that exist, the economic incentives that exist that are pushing the right in that direction. Right now, it doesn't seem like anything has changed that would move the party in a dramatically different direction. But either that needs to happen, which is to say that the right needs to lose a whole bunch of money and lose a whole bunch of elections in order to change their approach to politics, or we face a kind of institutional collapse. And it's it's hard to see a third way through that. Or you reach a kind of illiberal stasis where the country swings between small periods of ineffective governing and periods of sort of institutional revolution. And none of those are good things. So I can't predict the future, but I can say that we continue to be on a very bad road. And we've seen so many benchmarks along the way of which the election of Donald Trump was only one. Things like Charlottesville, things like January 6th, things like the current campaigns of folks who are running on an election denial platform, who are running to overturn the next election in a legal rather than a violent way. And every time something like this happens, there are people who are like, this has to be the turning point. And none of those things has been a turning point. So we can't have a kind of optimistic faith that things are going to work out on their own. No, despite all those things you just cataloged, including and most notably perhaps January 6th, the Republican Party seems poised, I hesitate to say likely, but there's certainly a more than reasonable chance of winning the next two major elections in the country. I'm ideologically on the left, although I have some conservative instincts, and the Democratic Party annoys the hell out of me quite often. But they are on the side of small D democracy at this point, and a good chunk of the Republican Party is not. And that does not seem to be a political impediment for them. It does not at all. And that's, that's a really dispiriting fact. It's really worrisome, and it does make you realize that the Democratic Party has a responsibility to find a way to not just embrace popular policies, which many of the main policies of the Democratic Party are popular, but figure out ways to enact them even in this counter-majoritarian set of institutions. Right. Because if the Democratic Party can't deliver for people, and if people can't recognize that the Democratic Party is delivering for them, and that's a media question in some ways, then you are going to see elections where Republicans win, where they strengthen counter-majoritarian institutions, which makes it harder for Democrats to win. And then you're in that spiral that you're talking about. I think that there are things that members of the Democratic Party can do at the margins, but this is ultimately not a Democratic Party problem. And I'm not sure that the Democratic Party has the power to fix it. I'm not sure who does, actually. Well, Maybe this is also an important part of Newt Gingrich's legacy of helping to initiate this shift away from the presidency toward Congress as an instrument of obstruction, 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 you know, grinding the country down to a halt so that we can't solve problems and politically taking advantage of the fact that <laughs> we broke the government and so therefore it's not performing as well as it should. So, I mean, it's, it's just this kind of death spiral that we still seem stuck in. Yes. A very unoptimistic note, but I, I think that it is important to recognize how these policies and tactics developed over time because they have escalated in pretty dramatic ways. But you can go back and you look at the Gingrich speakership the way that he's being challenged from the right, the way that he is backed into a reliance on obstruction. You see it play out with Mitch McConnell. You see it play out with John Boehner. You're going to see it play out if Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House. It's just that the right that will be challenging McCarthy is so much further to the right, right. and that right has very little interest in democracy as a form of government. Well, you know, I try to wind these things down to an optimistic conclusion, even if it's feigned, but 
I think I failed you. <laughs> I think I walked us right into an abyss. Okay, I'll, I'll give you my my optimistic. Take. You want to pull us out <laughs> before we go? I will at least give us a little foothold to begin to climb out on. Yes, do it, please. We have long just assumed that everyone agrees about what form of government we should have, how politics should be positioned in our lives, what our values are, what our core values are. And it has become very clear in recent years that that's not the case. And it requires us now to think hard about why we care about democracy. Why do we care about having a nonviolent system? Why do we care about having transparency in government and more people's voices being heard? All of these different things. And it requires us to make first-order arguments about politics in order to build a kind of consensus around those things. And building that kind of consensus isn't easy. It's never been easy. Building Political institutions has never been easy. Building trust in those institutions has never been easy. But if we don't start focusing in on those first-order things, then we're not doing our jobs. <laughs> we're not doing the work of citizenship. And there should be something clarifying about that, especially as things get scarier and more violent. I mean, ultimately, you have to choose between conversation and violence. And that's the ultimate first-order question. And democracy is, is at least, well, among other things, a belief in the potential of conversation. And violence is a complete abandonment of it as a possibility. And that's something different altogether. That's the end of conversation. And nobody should want that. Right. And that's, that's where we are right now. So let's figure out a way to continue to make politics an alternative to war. Okay, we're both pro-conversation. Am I clear on that? <laughs> well, look, we're podcasters. Is anyone surprised? <laughs> the book is Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. Nicole Hemmer, this was long overdue. Thanks so much for coming in. It was really wonderful. Thank you, Sean. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozdowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. So what'd you think of this episode? Was Hemmer's history helpful? Are you tired of hearing this story? We got a little dark at the end, but we were reaching for some optimism. How are you feeling about the future? You feeling good? You feeling bad? Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, leave a review, tweet about it, post on TikTok, whatever you do, all of it helps, and we really appreciate it. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.